Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Dan, the SVP of product at SkyTap, and we discuss how the structure of engineering teams change and mature over time. The unique intellectual property SkyTap made to help solve problems of moving on prem workloads to the cloud, and how to get continuous feedback from your employees about how to improve the company. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Dude, but I was really excited though when my prep team said that you were one of the like program leaders at Xbox. I was like, ooh, what did you do there? <laughs> so I worked on Xbox Live, so on the server side, not on the console side, but um the team that I was part of, we owned all the catalog infrastructure. So when you search for games or you search for movies or for music, that came through our team and our service. So it was pretty exciting. Uh, the last thing I did when I was on the team, we were getting ready for the Xbox One launch and one of the key features there. So people kind of go, Xbox One, but it wasn't the first Xbox. Why was it Xbox One? And it was really a target to be input one on the TV. So that that was the mission and the goal was to take over input one. So a big push was around live TV at the time. So we worked on the whole interactive guide for TV, which required bringing in huge volumes of data. Because if you think on a worldwide basis, the number of cable providers out there that all have their own channel lineups, their own programming, time zones, all that stuff. So we had to, we worked with a third party to bring in all that data. And then one of the big tricks was how do you, how do you make that all searchable very fast and present it in a guide very, very quickly, low latency queries, et cetera. And then have all the artwork for the TV, the, for the channels with it and all the artwork for the programs with it. So it's a really interesting problem and a, and a fun space to work in. That was my really my only foray in the consumer space um, in my career. I think at, at heart I'm an enterprise software guy, but it was interesting. Did you get your start in enterprise software? Take me take me back to the the early part of your career. Yeah, I started my career in enterprise IT as a COBOL and JCL programmer. So way back, I was a, I was a dinosaur. I guess I was a baby dinosaur at the time. But yeah, I started at HP. I did uh, eight years there, everything from you know the COBOL, JCL programming, all the way up through client server stuff, and then got into BI. And I absolutely love data. Spending that time in IT really served me well as I developed a lot of empathy for being on the receiving end of enterprise software. And ultimately, when I made my jump to Microsoft and landed on the SQL Server team, I could see the equation from both sides. So I could see the equation as uh, we used to joke in SQL that we weren't living on the bleeding edge. We were defining the bleeding edge of, of software, of database technology. And it was great. But we were always five, 10 years ahead of our customer base. And I, I also had that empathy that customers can't upgrade software every every time we do a release, even though we want them to upgrade it. You know, there's there's other dependencies that they have internally 
around the software that that blocks that. And you know, they work from tight budgets and other priorities than just upgrading software. But spent nine years at Microsoft. Most of it was on SQL Server. I did that that stint on Xbox Live. What I noticed when I would talk to people I would meet, and if I said, oh, what do you do at Microsoft? And I'd say, oh, I work on SQL Server. You know, eyes glaze over like, oh, okay. I then moved to Xbox. And if I said, oh, I work on Xbox, it'd be like, eyes wide open. Oh, man, that's so exciting. That's so cool. And it was like... Yeah, it's cool. Like SQL is cool too, but okay. (laughs) I think Xbox wins at a party though, right? Uh, Hands down. down. Well, I guess it depends on the party. So if you're hanging out with data geeks, (laughs) then SQL will always win. (laughs) I don't know. I would challenge you on that one because I like to do the... I I don't know though. I guess I didn't... uh... I didn't spend like that much time deep in the data. Like I spent enough time in data to accomplish the business outcome I was looking to accomplish. So I didn't like mm-hmm. geek out in data. I just needed to learn enough to have a persistence layer. I, I love how you phrase that, that you spent enough time with the tool to get the business outcome you were looking for. And that really, I learned that early on in my career at HP, that technology is an enabler to some business outcome or business decision. It's not for the technology's sake. And that's that's kind of what I meant where starting my career in IT, I carried that empathy forward. So, you know, I've come across people who they always want to do the next computer science experiment. Oh, I want to do this. Well, why do you want to do that? Oh, because it's cool. Okay, but is that what customers want? Is that going to help them solve their problem or address their need? What are we helping them do? And then you get sort of the blue screen of death over their eyeballs. Like, <laughs> uh, but it's cool technology. I want to go do that. And there's there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. But you know, when you're in a for-profit business where you have a P&L, SQL Server was a P&L. We had a profit and loss. You had to be very mindful the bets you placed on computer science experiments versus introducing new features for customers. Well, it's exciting to see the passion, right? Because I'm thinking back to my growth and that's exactly what I just wanted to do. I just wanted to build cool things. And then I wanted to make money. So I had to learn how to build cool (laughs) things while making money. (laughs) And that's a whole different, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. It, It changes the equation, but I think that the, you know, what I look at for doing cool things, those are my hobbies outside of my making money ventures, right? Right. Um, I, I I love to play the drums. I'm not a professional drummer. I, I don't make my living at playing drums. And I don't think I could. And it's probably not, I probably could get good enough if I played six or seven hours a day. But um, I, I like that to be a hobby. I don't want it to become a, a mission unto itself and have my world wrapped around it. And I love technology. That's what I do for my living. I don't actually do a lot of technology outside of my day job. I look to playing the drums or I I love wine. I love food. I love travel. Those sort of offset, those creativity outlets offset some of the technology and analytical aspects of my job. Exactly. I think it's absolutely necessary for you to be successful like as a person for yourself, right? Your own personal success because 
man, you, if you just force yourself to hit that one note all the day, every day <laughs> of the year, you're just going to, your soul is going to die a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully not too much, but yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I also firmly believe that those outside interests, even though they're not directly tied to technology, they influence what I do in my day job. You know, it, it, I can look at problems through different lenses, or I like to call it background processing. If I if I have a work problem and it's like, okay, I just can't figure this out. Sometimes I'll just put it on the background thread and then play the drums or listen to some music or drink some wine and lo and behold, like it figures itself out somehow. So oh, I had a guest <laughs> on that wrote a whole book about that. Oh, uh, what, yeah. Maybe Adam can remember he's listening in. He's a, one of our associate producers, but it was a couple months ago and he had a slow create framework and he was an excellent speaker, Sean Livermore. Yeah. What would, do you remember the name of the book, Adam? Oh yes. It's how to become. All right. So he wrote this book about like how an average Joe can become like an Elon Musk. Right. And so you uh -huh. go through that. He has this thing called like the slow create framework. And he partnered with like these psychologists. He's a, you know, sometimes when you're talking to people or you meet them and you're, you're like, this person might be an alien. They're so smart. Like, I don't <laughs> know how many neurons more than me they have, but they are just on a whole other level. That's this guy, Sean Livermore. He's one of those guys. That's cool. I'll definitely check that out because I'm a firm believer in that. Oh, yeah. Because it works. That's why you believe it because you do it and it works. I yeah. do it and it works. And then John <laughs> comes along and tells me how we met with this psychologist for a year and wrote a whole book about like why it works and how it works. I was like, oh, this is awesome. You, you get to work with bright people all day, right? You get to hire these bright people and have them explain problems to you and then help coach and mentor and guide and direct them. Is that what you're doing at work? Uh, yeah. And it's, it's a ton of fun going through the recruiting process and just interviewing candidates with all different sorts of backgrounds seeing what they bring to the table. And I, I, over the years, I've developed sort of a standard repertoire of questions that I'll ask people. And seeing the variety of ways that people approach these problems, and they're not like, what's two plus two? There's no right or wrong answer, really. It's more about how do they think through. And this isn't like, well, how many how many golf balls could you fit in a sparklets bottle? It's not, it's not those sort of old school Microsoft types of questions that are tricky. It's more about like what experience do they have in their background and how do they approach this problem and how do they pull on that experience to, to come up with their answer, not the answer, but their answer. So that's, that's a really fun part of my job. And then just growing and coaching program managers and product managers, no matter where they are in their career and no matter where they want to go, helping them look at problems differently, um, challenge themselves, helping them to connect dots. And I love it when I can just ask a question and like you see the spark go off. Like, oh my gosh, that was like the linchpin question. How did you know to ask that? And I'm like, well, actually, I didn't know it was the linchpin question. So don't give me too much credit. But as I was thinking through, like, that's one of the questions I would ask myself. And it's probably based on my experience to, to ask sort of that question. But that's really great. And then when I then sit as sort of a, as an audience member, when they're driving something or leading something and and seeing it all come together and everybody else kind of 
who's watching a presentation or giving feedback and hearing their feedback of, wow, that was great. That was a really great presentation and well thought out, or that design was amazing, or that feature is incredible. You know, getting feedback from customers is terrific. And we don't get enough of it because we always hear what's bad. We don't always hear what's good. I talked to uh, this guy, he does TLDR. It's like my favorite email newsletter thing. I get it in the morning. And uh, so I connected with him and he told me that he had just like sold this other API company he had. And then he had started the newsletter, right? And he goes, it's a night and day difference. He goes, at the API company, all I get is comments and feedback about how it's not fast enough or this is not working the way they think. Or He goes, but on the newsletter, everybody just replies and says, that's so cool. And he goes, because <laughs> I, I much prefer this business. <laughs> I, I like a balance. I mean, it's nice to know when we're doing things right that cust- we're making a difference with our customers. I also want to know when we've missed the mark because that's a, that's a learning experience. And it's not, we have, um, so I'm at, I'm at a company called SkyTap and part of our mentality or our approach is really an RCA, a root cause analysis mentality. So whether if it was a feature that didn't quite hit the mark or we had an incident with the service, it's not about whose fault it was and and why did they mess something up or not do something right. It's really about trying to understand from looking at it from 360 degrees, what went wrong? What did we miss? And how do we ensure the next feature we do, we don't make those same mistakes or you know, whether it's from a functional design or from an implementation standpoint. How do you store these? Do you have a favorite tool or something or Google Docs? <laughs> uh, I, I laugh because you had to qualify it with favorite. So we yeah. have a tool. I don't know that it's my favorite <laughs> tool. Um, we use Confluence. So these get every RCA gets its own Confluence page and goes through. There's a There's a standard template we use of, you know, what happened? How was it discovered? You know, what if it was um, if there was an incident involved? Kind of what was the timeline from when we first learned about the incident till resolution of the incident? What was the customer impact on that? Um, what was the business impact? So the business, the impact to SkyTap for that, and then what what remediation steps did we take initially to address the issue, and then. What do we need to do? Do we need to put more monitoring in place? Is there a process change we need to put in place to ensure that that same thing doesn't happen again? And then anytime there's a, a, a remediation, there's a JIRA ticket that tracks the work for that remediation. So we're in, we're in a service team org model. So the, the lead for the service team would take ownership of those remediation tickets and ensure that it gets dovetailed in with the rest of their work. I was just talking with uh, the founder of Kentaba, like mm-hmm. incident management, this guy. Mm-hmm. So he was at Facebook. I think they had like acquired his company. It was an acquisition hire. So they acquired his company. He was working at Facebook for like several years. He was responsible for building out, um, I think, I think it was workplace, like the Facebook workplace platform. It's a pretty big platform, but then he, he left and went on and was hanging out with like some past coworkers that are now at like Airbnb and Uber and all of this. And he's like, you know, what, what's like the one thing you miss from, from Facebook? And they, and they all referenced this like internal tool that Facebook had for managing like incident responses. 
But the bottom line was he showed me what he was doing and it was pretty cool. I have no idea if it'd be useful to you, but it's called Kentaba. You check it out if you want, but like K-I-N-T-A-B-A. Yeah. K-I-N-T-A-B-A. I like sharing tools though. When I find really cool things that, that are new, this was like a newer, I mean, they're large, but they're, they're definitely newer. Um, but when I find cool things that stand out to me, I love to, to share them because, you know, you want to see great tools, get the attention that they deserve, right? Oh, absolutely. My team, so we use, the, the engineering team uses JIRA to manage all their work. So whether it's tracking incidents or tracking feature work and break down into stories and tasks. My team from the feature side, I, I still can't say this tool with a straight face, but it's called AHA. So <laughs> A-H-A with the exclamation mark. I, 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 I shall not judge the, the name of the tool. You and your audience can do that. But it's a fantastic tool. And it's sometimes painful that my team will manage stuff outside of JIRA. But it, from a reporting standpoint, and, and really it's like, what are the attributes on features and what are the different ways we can slice and dice features and, and pivot them around to see like when we're coming up with our quarterly plan or our yearly plan, how do we look at this and how do we attach or associate feature work back to our business goals and business priorities. And AHA makes it really easy to do that. So it's a super flexible tool, has really good reporting capabilities in it. It does integrate with JIRA. So we, we have bi-directional integration going on, which softens the blow to some respect. But um, yeah, I, I, love, I love it when we find new tools that make our lives easier because Again, it goes back to what are the business outcomes? It's not because of the tool. It's what are the business outcomes? Yeah. What, what's the business outcomes SkyTap achieves? Um, so, excellent. Our mission is to help our customers move traditional workloads from on-premise deployment into the cloud unchanged. So, what do we mean by traditional workloads? So traditional workloads are applications that were not architected for the cloud. So they might still be in a, a very uh, client server type model. They may make certain assumptions on networking topology and IP address ranges, et cetera. Or they may be running on a platform that Azure or AWS or Google don't support, like IBM's Power Platform. So IBM's Power Platform has AIX, which is a Unix variant, has IBM I, which maybe some people remember as the old AS400, and you can also run Linux on Power. Well, we allow customers, whether it's x86 or Power applications, to bring those to Azure or to IBM Cloud uh, pretty much unchanged. So That's fantastic. Once they move them, you know, there's lots of things they can do. They can start to extend them with cloud native services. So if they want to front end them with an, a modern front end UI or mobile experience, or they want to tap into some of the rich analytics capabilities that Google or, or Azure have, now your data is being born in the cloud. You're not having to move it from on-prem constantly up to the cloud. Or in some cases, they just use it as a landing zone, leave it there for a few months as they rewrite it cloud native. So all those cases, we're, we're happy for our customers. They get value over it. And, and most of the time, there's some compelling event that's causing them to make the move. Like 
our CTO said, we got to exit all of our data centers. What are we going to do with these, you know, 100 AIX applications? We don't have the budget to rewrite them all. Ah, we'll use SkyTap and we'll bring them all to Azure or we'll use SkyTap and we'll bring them all to IBM Cloud. Oh, that's cool. You did all of that explanation without using the phrase lift and shift. I'll give you credits for that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> is that like a like a taboo word in, in the industry or is it just overused? Or No, it's just overused. I, I think what happens is over time, things lose meaning. And so like, what does lift and shift actually mean? So you are moving it from point A to point B, but what's involved in that? So we try to say, move it largely unchanged which is that that's what customers want they don't they don't want to have to rewrite stuff they don't want to have to go through their source code and find hard coded ip addresses and yeah i i've so i left microsoft and i went to um a large retailer for a period of time and people go look at my linkedin profile they'll see who that is and it just amazed me just bad practices over years and years and years of custom application development. And the amount of times we came across hard-coded IP addresses and source code, uh, one time is too many for sure. But that's the reality that these shops are dealing with. And so when you lift and shift and your application doesn't run because it has all these assumptions buried in the source code, that's not what customers want to deal with. They want to lift and shift and have things continue to run without making those changes. So have you built like proprietary tools to identify that or? Um, no, we approached it a little bit differently. So for our, our SDN, our software defined networking stack, we pretty much mimic what customers do on-prem. And so what they do is whatever the, whatever the subnet ranges are using on-prem and however they've segregated, you know, data networks from front end networks from mid tier networks, they can replicate that pretty much as is on RSDN. So instead of going through all the source code, all they do is say, okay, our topology looks like this on-prem. Let's replicate that topology in SkyTap, and then we'll move the applications. So if a host had a certain IP address on-prem, it'll have the same IP address on us. That's pretty cool. So that hard-coded IP address, don't need to worry about it. That's amazing. So the company has some patents around our SDN, and that was one of the early design principles was uh, networking. Networking's hard. It just is. Um, I think over the years, it's probably gotten harder. And to to try to simplify that for customers was one of the founding principles um, from the company even before I got there. Yes, it is hard. There are so many details. And the moment that you think you understand it, you talk to a smarter person and you realize you have like an infant's grasp understanding of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And every time I think I, you know, I learn a new concept and I think I understand it and a month or two will go by and somebody will ask a question and I'll be like, I got to go look that up. Oh, I yeah. think it's this, but I got to go look it up. And inevitably there's one minor detail I get wrong. Yeah, smart people that can make things really simple, they are worth their weight in gold. And that's that's one of the things, like when I'm uh, mentoring uh, junior PMs in their career, 
a lot of times they'll ask like, well, I don't need to know the technical details. I'm doing the functional design. This is what the users should see and, and how the system should behave for the users. But I coach them on, it always helps as a PM to know one or two layers deeper in the technology than you than you need to sort of deal with on a day-to-day basis. What that'll help you with is when you write a spec for engineering, it'll help you anticipate what questions engineering is going to have as they're coming up with the implementation design. And if if you don't understand that, you're sort of going to come, your spec will come to a certain point and there's going to be this big gap and engineers are going to make all these assumptions on what you mean by that. They're going to implement it and you're going to get the wrong feature. So if you can kind of go a little bit deeper in there, even though it doesn't show in your spec explicitly, the way you craft a user story or a use case or a constraint, it'll show. And your engineers will love you for it. You will be their best friend. So we have an engineering team over here. I didn't do it for a while. I did it for most of my life. And then when the podcast took off, I just stopped engineering for a little bit, but now we have a team again. And this is like what we're working on this week. So I've got this uh, engineer that I'm working with, right? And I was explaining like this concept of momentum on the team, like the importance of momentum, because if we have these really big stories and or they're not sized appropriately, we can't build that like rapid deployment momentum. And so that's one of the things we were working on this week is uh, better, better stories. I was going on, we use Pivotal, a tracker. If mm-hmm. there's anything better, let me know. But we were then like researching on YouTube, like how tips on how to write great stories. Because once you get out of it for a little bit, you kind of need a refresher, right? Um, yeah. So if you've come across any great content on, you know, writing user stories or breaking up work, let me know. Yeah, I find... Like when it comes to writing user stories, I always I always approach it from the depending on what the feature is and depending on who the engineers I'm working with is going to dictate kind of how I approach a spec. So whether I use user stories and how do I break those up or whether I use use cases and how I break those up or whether I just do a straight like set of requirements and break those up. To me, the the spec is really a communication tool. And the judge of that communication is going to be the engineering team and your test team if you separate those two functions out. Are they able to implement the feature that the PM intended them to implement? So how it looks, it's situational in my book. So if you took a sampling of five or 10 specs I've written, you'll see similarities you're also going to see some pretty big differences in them. Um, maybe your audience doesn't want to hear that. Like, no, I've been telling my team, we got to use user stories because they're the best thing on the planet. Don't don't tell me that they can use whatever they want. We need to standardize. And it's like, if, if you're getting the results you want by using user stories solely, go for it. My experience, it's not the case. So, I think your experience that each situation needs to be approached based on the attributes of that situation is the right one, right? Because I would say the most common question I would get, you know, back when we used to have events and like do public talks and stuff, <laughs> would be like- <laughs> Oh, the old days. <laughs> you remember the old days? Yeah. 
black and white film. No. <laughs> but people would ask me about, you know, what's the right way to design the team? Like you talked to all these people. Do we do Amazon two pizza teams? Do we do, you know, Netflix tribes? And I was like, look, your team structure should be dictated by your business model. Like, what, however you need to set up teams, like if I'm an agency doing client work, my team structure is going to be vastly different than if I'm like an IT organization inside an enterprise company that's building internal tools. Like, there's just going to be such a different layout. So you just have to pay attention to your customer and, and what's happening in your business and then structure. I mean, why do we hire roles anyway, Dan? We hire roles yeah. to solve problems. It's like, just look <laughs> at the problems and then that will help dictate the structure. Yeah, I got really interested in reorgs and that sort of thing when I was at Microsoft. So in, in almost 10 years at Microsoft, I probably went through 15 reorgs at least. Like it was it was crazy. But what I learned from that, form should follow function. How do you want the team to function? And what then what form is best going to allow them to function? And, and it, it, I mean, it's sort of in a line with what you say, where it's like, what business are you in? What are those business outcomes you want? And you should organize that way. I could always pin, I could always spot a reorg that was built around people. Because when somebody tried to explain why that particular org structure, it was a very convoluted and complex explanation of why that person is in that role and we have that team structured that way. When if you if you approach it like, well, we're looking for this outcome or the team to function in this way, and this is the org that supports that, people would go, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Okay. Yeah, versus based off of like social requirements or you know relationships. I, I get what you mean. I've seen messy orgs and I've seen clean orgs and... I've seen it enough to know that I won't work inside of a messy org. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing that is for sure is messy orgs are not durable. So whatever they're, whatever it looks like today, it's not going to look like that for very long because they're not going to get the business outcomes that they want. Yeah, they've got change going for them. It's just in a negative PNL way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a company that's that's either going down really fast or growing really fast because there's change happening at both. The stagnant companies are the hardest to deal with because they're like not doing anything. Well, you always have that um, the the promise of change, right? It's coming. Hold on, it'll be there. Just hang on a little bit longer, and then you know before you know it, you looked at your LinkedIn profile and you've been there for four years. It's like, oh, okay. Time for a change, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, yes. What's got you excited right now as a leader? I'm sure you read some leadership content. You're always learning. I read in your profile that you even did some, like uh, you mentor, and then you were also responsible for some learning with some engineering managers. What was that like? Um, yeah, so, wow, that's a, that's a big space right now because we're in sort of this weird world situation. And while in one respect, it feels very stagnant, like we've all been working from home for a year now, it also feels very unsettled. Like what is tomorrow or what is next week or what is next month going to bring? Um, so let me, let me put that aside. So at SkyTap, I'm sponsoring 
uh, a learning group around DE&I, so diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's a, it's a small group of engineering leaders and myself. And we just, we share industry material. We share, you know, what we're seeing internally. We share what we're hearing from friends and colleagues from other companies um, with the intent to broaden our understanding of the space because it is a very wide and deep space, but then to also help our teams kind of with ways to think about and approach DE&I. You know, in, in my leadership role at SkyTap, I'm part of our executive staff. And so um, DE&I comes up both with our current population, but also around hiring practices. And how do we incorporate this in our hiring practices? You know, from a, what has me excited? <laughs> um, excited probably from a, from being a little bit nervous is we're starting to see factions of our employee group that one faction, like they want everybody back into a physical office because they love those interactions. They, they want to be around people. They love the impromptu discussions that happen in the kitchen or, you know, waiting for the bus out front of the building. There's another faction that kind of, I like this work at home thing. It works for me. I can live anywhere in the, in the world, basically, based on working hours. And I don't want to go to the office. And then we have this middle group that they kind of want to have a foot in both camps. So I like, I want to work from home three days a week, but then I want to work in the office two days a week. Well, this makes a very complex equation of how do you satisfy everybody? Because it's not clear delineations of team or who works with whom that falls in each of these buckets. You have teams that span the buckets. You have people who need to work with each other spanning those buckets. So it, it's going to be very interesting how this plays out over the next six months. And how do we evolve our thinking as a leadership team? And how do we evolve sort of workplace practices to satisfy each of these camps? One thing that I saw before the pandemic that I thought was pretty interesting as at this large Fortune 500 company, and I was having a meeting there, and I noticed that like the way that all their offices were, it was clear that like nobody had like a permanent office location, right? It's kind of like a WeWork, but it wasn't a WeWork; it was the their offices. Mm -hmm. And they said that yeah, they have like a flexible. This particular team or group or department that I was in had a flexible style where some people would come in every day, uh, some people would work from home. Some people would come in one or two times a week and they basically just created this environment and let people come and go as they please. And the people who wanted relationships ended up meeting other people in the org that also wanted to be there and everybody kind of got what they want. Um, so that that's one thing I saw that just popped into my mind. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see um, what their employee surveys say about that and are are there are all the factions sort of feeling satisfied you know with if you think of maslow's hierarchy of needs we're, we're a little mm -hmm. bit higher up but you know are they all feeling satisfied with that type of arrangement and if they're not where aren't they feeling satisfied how do you do surveys do you, do you survey your engineering managers and um yeah we use a um we have our our hr payroll benefits tool has like a tiny pulse type of survey. So um, 
there's a we're always interested in what people have to say on topics and we're always challenged with what's the right cadence to survey them because there is survey fatigue and it's like even if we wait six weeks some people are going to feel like you just asked me this there's not enough time for this to change why are you asking me again if you wait 12 weeks then people are like uh, how come you're not asking me more frequently you know <laughs> etc company really doesn't want to know what I have to say but anyways so we, we try to keep very short surveys so like 10 questions and um, there's a couple of questions that we try to repeat every time so we can monitor trends and there's other questions that are more sort of timely like what's in front of us right now um, and we review those as a as a leadership team um, we have we have the executive staff which is a small group of people and then we have what's called our senior leadership team. And so that's a broader group of people managers. It's not all people managers, but it's a broader group of people managers at different levels within the organization. And so, you know, we talk about it in a small group, we talk about it in a big group and look at what types of programs or changes do we need to make to address some of the key areas that um, kind of like are the, the, the beeping red on the radar, if you will. Yes, you're involved. Right. It takes that's what it takes. You can't just set up an autopilot survey and be like, I've done that. Check that mark off. Right. You've got to constantly be paying attention to what people want. And that's the fun part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the fun part of life. You could automate everything. It'd probably be pretty boring. <laughs> well, and I, so surveys is one input. I think managers having one on ones with their teams or in, one on individual one on ones and in team meetings. It's really important. I think that's where a lot of the the deeply insighted, valuable feedback comes from. You know, when I'm when I'm coaching or mentoring people managers, we talk about how to run a one-on-one. -on -one. And it's not about what's the status of your project. That's important, but there also has to be time put aside for how are you doing? What are you worried about as an employee of this company or as a citizen of this world? And making it safe for the employee to engage in that dialogue and capturing that feedback and testing multiple data points by asking multiple people the same question and looking for what are those trends or, you know, at the very least, what's going on in my employee's life that may be impacting their performance? And is there something I can do as a manager to help soften some of that? How does that actually go down in person? Because I just had this vision in my head of like me sitting here typing like, okay, okay. And like taking information from you. Do they, <laughs> do they just have a human conversation with eye contact and then later they put some stuff into the system? How does that work? Uh, you know, it, it's going to be every manager is going to have their preference. Like I have to type things because I won't remember. Like as soon as we end the one-on-one -on -one Zoom call, it's like, psh, mine goes oh, yeah. blank. Um, I, I think the the key is we're humans. So it can't be an interrogation. It has to be a, sort of a dialogue. And at the foundation of that dialogue has to be a level of trust. So as, a, as people managers, we have responsibilities to the company. We have responsibilities to our people. But at the end of the day, we're all human. We need to establish that trust relationship so that our employees feel comfortable giving us the feedback that maybe is uncomfortable to hear. And they have to trust us with that feedback. So 
if I'm if I, if I'm in a one-on-one with my boss and I think he's just banging away on the keyboard and I'm not sure if he's doing email or taking notes, I will say, Brad, I need your undivided attention for a second. I need you to I need to be sure that you've heard this, and then you can you can take your notes. And we just have to be has to be a safe environment to be able to say that. Or, you know, as a manager, I'm going to say. I'm going to put aside my notes, so we may have to talk about this a couple of times, but I want to be sure that I'm giving you my undivided attention here. When we were all in the office, it was easier because we'd be in a conference room and you could see that I'm not doing email, that I'm actually taking notes. In this world, it's it's much harder because you don't, you don't, if I turn off my video, you have no idea what I'm doing. Yes, you're exactly right, which puts more emphasis on building up that that social trust with your team because you need more social trust to do this remote work stuff oh across the board yeah okay so coaching people we're actually working on like building a leadership training program for technologists and mm-hmm. so we're we're putting together we've got all of this content but we're trying to really figure out like what do what do people care about right so you train your people you coach them on one-on-ones what are some other topics that are really close to you that you want all of your direct reports to understand? Well, number one, it's individualized. So another aspect of the one-on-one is ensuring as a manager, I know what this person's professional and personal goals are. Personal goals as much as they want to share with me, but I should know their professional goals. And so I'll give you an example. My um, my UX manager, one of his goals is to get a better understanding of the business. So, you know, in his role, he's working with with the PM team, he's working with engineering, he works with customers, but he didn't feel like he had a, a sense of like, how does Skytap's business function? Great. Okay. I can find somebody in the organization who's in a spot whether it's in sales operations or business operations, who has that perspective, I can do an introduction and I can let them sort of build that relationship. And now that person can mentor my UX lead on what is Skytap's business? How do we function? How do we sell? How do we collect revenue? How do we report revenue, et cetera? Another goal of his might've been, I want to learn... I want to go deeper on CSS. I don't know. I'm making something up. Great. Well, let's find somebody on our web front end team who's an expert on CSS. And maybe there's some projects that you can contribute to. So I can carve out a little bit of time in your you know, workload that you could actually go do some implementation of, of some front end pages. So it's going to be really specific and individualized, but it's it's helping that individual make connections and that it's okay to have multiple coaches. It's okay to have multiple mentors. And it's okay for those to change on a regular basis as you're growing and learning and sort of achieving what you wanted to achieve in that area. Great. Hey, this has been a great relationship. I've learned a lot from you. Thank you very much. On to the next one. And in other cases, it may be somebody outside the company also. Depending on what the topic is, you want to be sure that you're creating a a safe zone for your employee to have that relationship. If if you're doing it with other people in the same company, they may not feel safe to bring up like, I don't know this, or I'm questioning this, or I have a problem with this person, just the game of telephone. So, hey, 
I'm have, I really want to get better at interpersonal relationships in the workplace. Oh, I know somebody outside of SkyTap who's really good at that. Let me connect you with them. Now they have a safe bubble where they can have candid conversations. You know, my guy can or my girl can share what's really going on in their own words and not fear any type of recourse. Okay, so... I have on my notes that in the prep call, you were talking about tool chains. And so Adam said, hey, he wants, he's got some interesting insight on tool chains. And I'm like, what? What? Tell me what tool chains are. <laughs> yeah, there's actually, um, so what stemmed from that, this is, this is what I get when, when my marketing group asks me for topics and I don't really understand the context. It ends up in, I'm on a modern CTO podcast and I'm writing an article about tool chains. So <laughs> perfect. Uh, that, that'll teach me. So what are tool chains? And look, anybody can go out and Google and, and you'll find you know as many definitions as search results around tool chains. The way I look at tool chains is in order to deliver an application that's addressing a business need, there's a set of tools that you need to create the application, to deploy the application, and to run the application, monitor it, secure it, et cetera. All those tools, there's not one tool, so there's tools in each of those camps. So there's tools that developers use, there's tools if you have release managers or engineers doing release management, there's CI, CD tools that you'd use to deploy it, and then you're gonna have a set of monitor, monitoring tools and tools to capture logging and monitor performance and availability and all that other stuff. That's your tool chain. When we're working with customers who are running these applications on premises, they have a, they have a specific tool chain. And I say specific, not that it was deliberate. A lot of times it's accidental oh, we need something to do this. Let's go find a tool for that. Oh, we need something to do this. Oh, let's go find a tool for that. And so, but they have a tool chain that they're using on-premise to deliver the application. When they migrate to the cloud, most of the time they're just thinking, oh, we'll take our existing tool chain and we'll use, instead of using it on-prem, we'll use it in the cloud. What I try to counsel our customers on is, this is the time to, to reevaluate that tool chain and maybe take a bit more of a structured look at it. Do an inventory. What are all the tools your developers, engineers, support personnel, et cetera, using to deliver and run this application? Do they like those tools? Do they not like the tools? Maybe they inherited the tool from somebody that made that decision 10 years ago. Are all those software vendors still in business? So keep in mind that in certain cases, we're dealing with applications that are 20, 25 years old. They may be using a tool where that company went out of business 10 years ago. So <laughs> there's risk there, right? Are the licensing models for these tools? Do you have perpetual licenses? We find this quite a bit in the IBMI space where tools are licensed to a specific server serial number. Let me restate that. Yeah, you get the big eyes. The tool is licensed to a specific hardware serial number. So in order to get the license from the vendor, you have to have the serial number for the server that it's going to run on. You can't run that software on another server. It's on that server and that server only. These are some of the considerations. They need to take inventory of it. Then they need to think about when we move to the cloud, do we want to use that same tool? Can we use that same tool? Is it going to be, from a licensing perspective, friendly? 
up there? Are there, do we have other teams that are doing stuff up in the cloud that are using tools? So should we standardize across teams and across tools? If you're moving to AWS or, or Google or Azure, are there offerings, cloud native offerings like built in? So Azure has monitoring tools, they have log analytics tools, et cetera. Maybe you should use those tools and just sort of pay for the storage and not directly have a license cost for the tool. And then one of the interesting things, going back to we're humans, that's all very objective, if you will, but there's a subjective aspect of this. I come across professionals in the IT space that they love learning new tools. So yeah, we're moving to the cloud. Great. I want to learn a new tool because I can put that on my LinkedIn profile, on my resume, and this is really exciting and I love technology and I love being an expert on lots of tools. I also come across a lot of people that they don't like change. And so going from on-premises to the cloud is a big change and that causes concern and worry. Am I going to lose my job? Is my job going to change? I really don't like learning new things. And then you tell them this tool that they love that they've been using for 20 years, can't use that tool anymore. You got to use a new tool. And that's just that's just a lot for them to take on. They're, maybe they're later in their career and they don't want to spend the time to learn a new tool. Maybe they're just scared. They, they haven't learned something new in a while and they don't really know how to approach it. And they think this is some evil plot by their leadership to get rid of them. Oh, we'll change everything. And then he doesn't provide any value to the organization. And so we can get rid of them. Ah, so got to take into account, you know, the objective stuff, licensing, will the tool function, as well as the subjective stuff, like what's going to be the impact to the team. Yeah, my mind is running wild with all the analogies I can't use. Maybe they're inappropriate, but <laughs> yes, there are all types of people out there in the world. And we're, we're walking around with them, we're working with them, and they all have their importance, right? So you get to Fortune 500 companies, and your company is at a growth stage, there will be a time when all you want are the people who want to come in and punch nine to five and just do consistent work, and they don't want any surprises. There's a time, there's a place for those people, but there's also a place for the people that want it to be different every day, you know? So mm -hmm. it's really about, at least my personal growth has been about self-awareness to understand who I am and what I like based on where I'm at because it can change. You can go through different stages in life. At some stages, you could want things to be chaotic. Like for example, even you could even go deeper to get a little bit off track. There can be some areas of your life that you don't want to change, but you could really love change in other areas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I love my family. I don't really want change there. I want that family <laughs> to stay together. But like <laughs> at work, I like releasing new products and stuff, right? So uh -huh. you can have, yeah, it's just, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm getting too too out there. But self-awareness, I think, is under-discussed in the, the context of professional advancement. Yeah. And I think no matter what the change is, it can be hard. So have a dialogue, listen see what's really important to the people and why there might be some resistance to the change and what can be done to address that. Like, I always think of like auctions and if you're going to bid on something, what's your reserve price? So I will not pay more than this. And so you're going to bid up. You're not going to start there. You're going to bid up to that. And I sort of think it's, it's a lot of that concept or um, 
methodology applies in the workspace just around negotiations. Like know what you're, what, know what's non-negotiable for you, know what is negotiable and work there, find some common ground. Don't compromise all of your integrity, but also don't expect the whole organization to bend to your whims or your needs. You got to find that common ground. And the only way you find that is through dialogue discussion. Yes. Yes. Well, we're coming up on time here. So I want to do a quick shout out for, for the company. I mean, we got to talk to Brad, the CEO, right? Yep. And uh, what's, what's like the call to action? How do we get people, maybe somebody's listening that is thinking about making this shift uh, or moving their stuff? Like, what do they do? How do they learn about you and get started? Yeah, well, www.skytap.com. Um, I love, we just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a customer migrate their their um, production AIX workload into SkyTap on Azure. And probably the, the best quote, we didn't have to pay for it, this was their quote, was if we knew it was going to be this easy, we would have done it years ago. Sometimes things that seem really hard and complex when you get into it aren't that hard and complex and the benefits are so wonderful. And so they're out of their data center, they're running in the cloud, they're running on SkyTap, on Azure, they're starting to make use of Azure native services and they couldn't be happier. So don't delay. <laughs> Operators are standing by. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do that. That sounds fun. Uh, you can go to the Azure Marketplace or you can go to the IBM Cloud Catalog, search on SkyTap, you'll find us. You can provision an account and you could have an IBMI or an AIX LPAR spun up in five minutes or less. So, Oh, they can do it without you. They can do it without us, yeah. That's you're giving them control. Yep, that's absolutely. Awesome. So, um, yeah, it's exciting time. Like I said at the start, like I love solving business problems, and SkyTap solves real business problems and helps some of these folks in IT be the hero, help with the data center exit, help with an application modernization. And when I get quotes like "This was so easy," I wish we would have done this years ago. Like that. That makes my job satisfying. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.